You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Good morning. Today's scripture is Ephesians 10, I mean, sorry, 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. It's um, an incomprehensible gift, and it's not by our works. There's nothing we can do to earn your grace. It's just, it's given to us out of an overflowing abundance of love. And I thank you for that. Help us to um, not lose sight of your grace, not lose sight of your love. Um, thank you for the good, the good that you have prepared for us. And I pray that you'll open our hearts and our eyes that will walk in obedience um, in a way that is aligned with your greatest desire for our lives. Um, Thank you for the words you've given Jay this morning. I pray that you will open our hearts and open our minds to receive them, that um, whatever conviction we hear or experience while we're in this building, that it won't um, leave us when we walk out and go about our daily lives. I pray that it will just really penetrate heart and mind and soul and transform us to be more and more like you. In your most precious name, amen. Thank you, Pamela. Well, I'm uh, happy to be back with you. I uh, forgot a, an announcement when I was doing announcements last week that the elders have decided to go forward with the project for enclosing the courtyard. We had a discussion about that and kind of took a straw poll to see where everybody was at with it, but we hadn't made a decision at that point, and so I wanted you to know that we have decided to move forward with that, with enclosing the courtyard, and we'll have some gates to open up when we're all getting together. Uh, this, this passage of Scripture, I think, is, a, is an important one. I, I, like, it's Scripture, right? But, but Paul is writing a letter to a church that he knows pretty well. In fact, he spent a lot of time there. So the church in Ephesus, Ephesus is a... a pretty large city. It was a very influential city back in the ancient world on the west coast of Asia Minor, what's now called Turkey. 
it was a, a seaport, but unusually it was not really that close to the sea. There was a, a channel that went to a, what they called the sacred port in Ephesus. So they had a very well-protected harbor, but it was accessible through this channel, which gave them security from pirates and things like that. But in the long run, it, it was a liability because that, that channel silted up over time. And now, like if you went there, you would never really think that Ephesus was a seaport because it's so far from the ocean. Uh, Paul visited Ephesus after his, like at the, when he was returning back to Palestine and Antioch. Antioch was the church that sent him out. And uh, a few weeks ago, when we were talking about Philippians, I described how uh, on Paul's second missionary journey, he went through Asia Minor and then was forbidden to speak by the Holy Spirit until he got to Troas and then went across to Macedonia where Philippi was. Well, at the end of that journey, so that, that journey lasted several years. And at the end of that journey, Paul was on his way, kind of anxious to get back to Palestine and to Antioch and visited a, this city, Ephesus. And he had a, a couple with him who were his partners in ministry. And they were actually his partners in business too, Aquila and Priscilla. He had met them in Corinth because they had been kicked out of Rome. They were Jews who were tent makers and had been kicked out of Rome when Claudius started one of his persecutions of the Jews, which kind of fed into the persecutions of the Christians later. So Paul hooked up with Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth and they were accompanying him, they probably thought, back to Palestine where he would introduce them to the church and so forth. But they stopped in Ephesus he speaks a couple of times in the synagogue and he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there, probably to build up the few believers who had acknowledged Christ at that time when he was just there for a short period of time. That was like one of the shortest places that Paul stayed, except for the places where he was like kicked out or run out of town or stoned or something like that after a week or so. But it, it was one of his shorter periods of time, but he left two ministry partners there, Aquila and Priscilla. After, after he left, another guy who's kind of famous in the book of Acts and in the, the uh, New Testament is, uh, came along. His name is Apollos. He was a Jew also who had been instructed of the Messiah, sort of. So he only recognized the baptism of John the Baptist, a baptism of repentance for sins. But he came preaching God's kingdom was at hand. And Apollos was a very eloquent teacher. So uh, when he came to Ephesus, he was teaching this. And Aquila and Priscilla met him, took him aside and said, hey, there's actually more to the story than, than you know, or at least more than you're saying. And so they instructed him more carefully in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think he probably got kind of excited about that. Anyway, he didn't stay in Ephesus. He went to Corinth, and he's featured as one of those teachers that the Corinthians tended to follow. And the Corinthians had kind of a problem with uh, getting all enthusiastic about this teacher or that teacher. And Apollos was one of those guys because he was a very articulate speaker. Anyway, uh, Paul had gone back to Jerusalem and to Antioch after a few years then, or actually it probably wasn't a, too long, that long, but after a while, he decided to go along and encourage the churches that he'd planted before. And he came that time on the overland route to Ephesus, and he met a couple, actually 12 disciples who were believers in Jesus Christ, 
but they had not received the Holy Spirit. And when Paul uh, found them, he met them and he, and he asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit. And they said, uh, well, we hadn't actually heard there was a Holy Spirit. We only heard about the baptism of John. So you can kind of guess where they had got the information about Jesus Christ. So it appears that Apollos had met them, but they were not connected with the church in Ephesus. That, that is where Aquila and Priscilla had discipled people. They were believers in Christ, but they had not linked up with the church. So Paul instructs them, prays with them, lays hands on them, and they're filled with the Holy Ghost. And they're then disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and Paul goes to Ephesus and stays there for about two and a half years, teaching, building up the church in that city. And it's, it's a, an interesting city because it was established by people uh, immigrating from Athens. So it has the, the rational, sort of intellectual character of Athens. Athens was very artistic. Uh, they placed a high value on art. They placed a very high value on philosophy, on trying to understand things. So they were, they were a leading site of, of the thinkers of the age. And they, that was where Ephesus was founded from, people from Athens going to Asia Minor and starting this colony. Well, Asia Minor, being farther to the east, had a, what you might call more primitive culture than Athens. And there's, there's a, they were a lot more spiritual in a, a sort of broad, what we would consider more pagan way, but all of the cultures we're talking about, apart from the uh, Jews and the Christians, would be what we call pagan cultures. But um, their, their theology was a lot less organized. So in Athens, they had the Greek pantheon that we're familiar with. And in the, um, the East, as those ideas were taken East, they were sort of melded with the folk religions of the area. So there's a, a deity in the, uh, the Greek religion or the Greek pantheon called Artemis. And in the Greek mythology, she's a virgin forever, like, and... Uh, is a skilled huntress. So she's like a youthful, like a maiden in the Artemis of the Ephesians. So one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians in Ephesus. That's why that's, this is kind of important to the story. Uh, but she is not represented as a virgin. She's, she's like a mother goddess. Uh, and her statues are always represented with like a whole bunch of breasts. Uh, that's one of the distinguishing features. And, and she's more like the fertility cults that were around Israel when God brought the Israelites to the promised land, that he said, don't have anything to do with them, drive them out. So Baal and Ashtaroth, those religions, she is more similar to those than she is to the Greek mythology set. And that, that shows that there's this weird interplay between the East and the West in Ephesus. And that kind of shows up and what we see in Acts 19, which is where you'll find most of the stuff that happens in Ephesus is recorded in Acts 19. And so as Paul is teaching there and people are coming to Christ, they are repenting of their former works. And among those things, they were, um, with this sort of meld of cultures, they were scholarly, but they were scholarly about very esoteric things. And so they had a lot of books about magic and they practiced magical arts and they had... Uh, they were sort of more disciplined than the further eastern 
magic practitioners, but they were much more sort of mysterious and mystical than the Western, the people from the West. So when they began to repent of their, their works, their occult works, they brought their books together. They brought their books together and burned them. And then they totaled up the value of those, and it was 50,000 drachmas, which in today's dollars is about uh, 4 million. So it, they had a huge investment in arcane, esoteric literature that they burned up for the sake of Jesus Christ. There was also a riot there, pretty famous riot, because as people in Ephesus are turning to Christ under the teaching of Paul, they're turning away from idols. And there is a large trade of craftsmen who make small silver shrines of Artemis, and people aren't buying them. And so one of the craftsmen kind of stirs up the others and says, look, we're going to be in economic trouble here. But the real, the real problem is that Artemis, our, our great goddess, Artemis of the Ephesians is going to be brought into disrepute and the whole world is going to stop worshiping her and it's all the fault of these Christians. And so they, they seek out Paul to drag him into the, they have this large mob, everybody gets all excited about this idea that Artemis is being blasphemed and, and so we got to do something about that. And uh, they try to find Paul, but they don't find him and so they drag some of the Christians into the amphitheater and the amphitheater is still there, huge amphitheater. So like probably thirty to 50,000 people are there and they're shouting for two hours straight, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And one of the officials, city officials says after that, okay, quiet down. Like we're about to be accused of a riot and there's, there's courts. If you need to settle this stuff in a legal way, deal with it that way. And that's, that's a famous incident that uh, occurs in the book of Acts as well. And those are, are recorded in, in Acts 19. So, it, shy, it kind of shows the flavor of this church. And since Paul had spent a long time there, uh, after he wrapped up his third missionary journey, he didn't want to stop in Ephesus because he has all these friends. And he was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem by, his, uh, by, by Pentecost, which was a, a great festival of the Jews. And he wanted to get there. At that time, he may not have known, but he's being told all the way after that that by prophets that he's going to be arrested. So he has an appointment with destiny, you might say. And he didn't want to stop in Ephesus, but he really wanted to leave some instruction with the Ephesian elders. And so they came and met him at Miletus, which is a seaport just a little bit to the south of Ephesus. And, and on his way through, he left them there, goes back to Jerusalem, is arrested, goes to prison, and it's from prison that he writes this letter to the Ephesians. So... That, that's setting the stage, and I know I probably take too long in giving you the historical context of, of this letter. We could just read it and jump right in, and it would probably have all you need from it. But I think context is important, and I hope that it helps you understand what we read and what we study from this letter. Uh, like, for instance, let's say that you were in a, you're sitting on a bench in the park at night, and a couple of guys walk by and you hear one of them say, I just bought her a ring. Instantly, a picture forms in your mind, right? But what if I told you that the other guy, just before they walked past you, the other guy had said to him, well, she's kind of suspicious. How are you going to get her to put your name on the trust? Does that change the picture? Yeah. And so the context for what 
Paul is writing to these people. See, Paul is writing this to the Ephesians. But the Holy Spirit is writing it to us. But it helps us to know what the Holy Spirit's saying if we know what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. And so that's why I like to give you the background of these letters that Paul writes. So anyway, uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to do the whole letter, obviously. It's a, it's a great letter. And um, I think you should read the whole letter. It'd be wonderful to, and I'm sure at some point we'll, we'll go through it. But Paul is writing to the Ephesians because he knows these people. He loves them. Even in prison, he hears that they're doing well, that they're following in faith. And he wants to give them some encouragement. He wants to remind them of the deep things that are easy to forget in the day-to-day busyness of life. And he also wants to give them some instruction. So later in this same letter, he gives them instruction about what relationships are all about, especially asymmetrical relationships. He, there's a famous passage about husbands and wives. But then following on from that, he talks about uh, children and parents and masters and servants. And so he's showing us how important relationships are. And I think we see some of that scattered even through the passage we're talking about. He goes from there into talking about um, the spiritual warfare that is going on all around them. So remember, this church was very aware of the spiritual world around them. In the West, we're not so much. But Paul speaks very clearly and directly to the Ephesians about the spiritual warfare that we're involved in as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, we're involved in it because we're in Jesus Christ. But that puts us, puts us in a uniquely favorable position. Now, I cannot emphasize this enough. It, like, if you think about the spiritual warfare that we're involved in, and you start to feel a little creepy, and you start to feel a little concerned and uneasy, don't. Don't. We're involved in this warfare because we're in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has already won the war. We're kind of in the mopping up stage. We're, we're in this interim stage where we're waiting for the full revelation of, of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ and through us and established on earth. And I believe that that's going to come someday. May come soon. I long for that to happen, but God has his own timetable and he hasn't given me any clues about what that is. So the reality of the spiritual war should not make us fearful not a bit. There is nothing that the powers of darkness can do to you when you're in Jesus Christ. So if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, it's proper for you to be fearful of the spiritual world that is invisibly all around us. But if you're in Jesus Christ, if you've given your heart to him, you just remember, because this is rock bottom true, Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So demons may speak badly, you know, like, like in a way to intimidate you and so forth, but they can't hurt you if Jesus Christ is in you. Anyway, that's part of the reality that, that uh, is the background for this letter. So we're starting with Ephesians 2. And we're just looking at at one through 10, and there's kind of three basic things that I want to pull out of this. So you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit 
that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So remember who Paul is writing this to? It's writing to people who are aware of the spiritual world and the spiritual war that's going on around us. And the idea of uh, that spirit being at work is not gonna be foreign to them. And for Paul to say that clearly, like the difference between where they were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you were walking according to the course of this world. And the course of this world is guided by, is orchestrated by the powers of darkness. That was not news to them. So he introduces it because it's encouraging to, to them when he continues. But, but before he gets to the, like the, the good part of the victory, there's something else I want to bring out, which is uh, that spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So did you notice the change in the pronouns? So Paul starts out in the first two verses, he's saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following the course of this world. But now he's saying we. So who's we and who's you? Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul had been instructed from his youth in the ways of God, in the knowledge of God. The Ephesians had come from pagan cultures. And so when you look around today, when you look around this fellowship and when you look around um, this city and this culture, you see a difference in people. So there are some people who are raised in the knowledge of God and even the knowledge of Jesus Christ. They're Christian but it may be a formulaic or a formalistic religion of Christianity. But that's the we that Paul's talking about, transposing what he's saying to them to what we experience today. So religious people who are raised in the Judeo-Christian tradition are no better than the people from the culture around us who were not raised in the Judeo-Christian tradition, who are raised to be irreligious or uh, unreligious or from some other religion. So if they were raised Hindu or they were raised animist or even Wiccan or something like that, if they're raised some other way, they have a different tradition, then that's the you that Paul's talking about. But the we is we who, from our background, kind of have some knowledge of God and it may make us think that we're better than them, but we're not. We're in the same boat among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. And the only thing that makes the difference as we come to Christ, see, if we can be religious and still be controlled by the passions of our flesh. We can be controlled by, by sins that are more in our mind than in our flesh, but pride, which may not seem like it's, it's like fleshly, but we know it's a part of our lower nature, right? We, we know that it's contrary to the spirit of Jesus Christ. So we have things that we recognize as, as fleshly sins, like uh, sex and drugs and stuff like that. And there's a whole host of those as our, our bodies want to find some comfort and our souls desire that comfort. Um, 
in some way that we can control it. So it's some way we're seeking comfort apart from God, apart from Jesus Christ. And if we're more religious or if we're raised in a very disciplined tradition, then we may have other ways of finding control in our lives. So we don't do this and we don't do that. And we think we're better. And, and we're probably better off if we don't do drugs and we, we do not engage in promiscuous sex. Our lives are going to be better because those things are, are destructive in a lot of ways. But that's not really going to bring us to Jesus Christ. That's not going to give us what Jesus Christ carries. Jesus Christ said, I came that they might have life and life more abundantly. And religion cannot bring us life more abundantly. It can bring us a, a more disciplined lifestyle in which our souls wither under the burden of performance. And that may be better and it's better for society than being led by the, the direct passions of the flesh, but it's not bringing us the more abundant life that Jesus Christ gave himself to provide for us. That more abundant life comes from him by his spirit and it moves us beyond religious performance. So we, like everyone else, were by nature children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's something that Paul reiterates throughout his letters. By grace you have been saved. It's not because of your works. It's not that performance that we inherit through our religious traditions. It's his grace working in us by his power and by his spirit. So there's... Um, There are a couple of Greek words that I, I don't think are best translated in ESV, but, but you get the idea, and I think you just have to look at it a little closer. So in 2.5, where it says that when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. That alive together, being made alive together, is a compound Greek word that includes this idea of animation or reanimation, like being raised from the dead, but it is, has another Greek word attached to it that means together. It's a, a corporate thing. It's a group thing. And so in the West, like in the tradition, the religious tradition that I grew up in, uh, we made a big deal that every person must receive Jesus Christ for himself or herself. That's an individual decision and I'm not disputing the fact that it is an individual decision, but that then basically we follow on Jesus Christ by ourselves and just me and Jesus. And so we go to churches and where we can be part of this church and then we can, if we have a problem with that church, we can move to a different church and we can have a connection there, uh, mainly because we like the teaching or whatever it might be, whatever attracts us to a particular church. But I kind of lost the idea in my religious tradition of this corporate experience of God's grace unfolding. And that's something that I think is very important. And that's the second thing that I want to really pull out of this and make a point to those Greek words that almost get buried. And that, that Greek 
compound word. It's, it, there are two other words in verse 6 that have that same together aspect to them. And it says, where he raised us up with him. And so ESV is focusing on our togetherness with Jesus. But that togetherness is corporate. It's a, a togetherness that applies to all of us. And we're going to experience Jesus' power working in us when we are together, when we make ourselves part of a fellowship, not just attending the same building to hear the same teaching and even sing the same songs, but when we recognize that we are together. That's why I like to think of us as the Enclave family. We're, we're connected deeper than just the fact that we all happen to go to this church together. And that connection is really in Jesus Christ. It's by his spirit. And you may have experienced it. You may have experienced love and affection for the other people that you know here. And you can have that same love and affection for people in other congregations too. But it's a love and affection that, that goes deeper than just um, being able to talk about things in a friendly way. It's something where God has, has made our hearts deeply connected and allows us to see his work in us and in each other unfolding. And so that raised us up with him and seated us with him is also with each other. And so we together are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Stop and think about that. Now we know that we're sitting here in this building in Turlock, California. But in a real spiritual sense, we are seated in Christ in the heavenly places. And the, what, the important thing about that, I mean, something I want you to recognize and not lose hold of is that that means you and I are seated above all principalities and powers because that's how Paul describes the seat that Jesus occupies. And if we're seated in him, then we are above all principalities and powers, above all the spiritual hosts of wickedness that are controlling what's happening in this world. We are seated above them in Jesus Christ. And he has done that, going on to verse seven, so that in the coming ages, he, that's God the Father, might show, might demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So God is through this life, and we suffer in this life, don't we? We've talked about that a lot because that's, that's something that I've had to, to grapple with myself and I talk about it, but I've seen many of you suffer and suffer through things and come out and experience God's grace in some new way. But we suffer, and yet we are brought into Jesus Christ for the purpose of God demonstrating his immeasurable grace, the immeasurable riches, the overflowing bounty. One of the old movies I like was the black and white, and then they colorized it version of A Christmas Carol. And in that one, the, the ghost of Christmas present shows up, and it's this 
big guy with a beard and a green robe in the colorized version. And he's sitting on this, uh, actually he's reclining on this pile of food and all good stuff. It's just like a huge pile of plenty of everything that would make your heart overflow with contentment and with pleasure and with joy. And that's more like what God wants to be to us than a taskmaster, than a, a schoolmaster or a disciplinarian. God has so much of his riches and grace. And if we will trust him, we will find the things that he wants to correct in us drying up, shriveling, and falling away. He wants to display his goodness in us and before our eyes. And that's something that is very precious and that I want you to experience with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. And we know that our salvation is not our own doing. But do we not often get caught up in the thought that after we're saved, that's like being given a boost from where we couldn't quite make it up to the dance floor, but now that we're here, uh, it's up to us. No. He still wants us to move with him. He wants to demonstrate as we walk with him, as we live with him, as you could say dance with him, that we are showing his goodness, his grace. We are models of his overflowing plenty and grace, the abundant life that he wants everyone to be attracted to. He wants to reveal that through us to the people around us. Oops. Um. So, not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So here's the final point. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So that sounds kind of like you got to do something, right? That kind of seems like it's going back to the idea that we're, we have to perform. But we're created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has created you. He has created you with a particular DNA profile. He has created you with a particular environmental circumstance that allows that DNA profile to produce a particular phenotype, and that's your physical self. But he's also created you with relationships that have given you sometimes obstacles and sometimes help in recognizing who he is and trusting in him. He's doing all of that so that you will be able to accomplish certain good works which he has be prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I kind of think of it like this. Suppose you had... Um, a friend who sent you tickets to an art exhibit. There's an art exhibit, let's say up at the Gallo Center, and it's a famous artist and everybody wants to go. I don't know if you're into art, maybe that doesn't sound like your cup of tea, but bear with me. So you decide to go, and when you get there, you're walking around and, and the 
artwork is amazing. And you, these paintings are on the wall. And some of them are unframed and some of them have ornate frames. And you notice a little brass plaque on one that has a frame. And so you walk over to it and you see that it says, by and for, and then it has your name on the plaque. And you think, oh, that's weird. What a coincidence. Somebody else has the same name as me. And you see another one, and there's one on a picture that's unframed, and it's not a little brass plaque, but it's a little, it says the same thing, by and for, has your name, then it has a little picture of you. Oh, that's weird. Well, that's what God is doing. That's what God is doing with us and through us if we will let him, if we will participate. He is creating a masterpiece that involves us. And it, it requires something of us, but nothing that he hasn't already put into us. Nothing that he hasn't already prepared for. So these good works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them are part of that masterpiece. And it's nothing that you have to assume a responsibility for. It's nothing that you have to be fearful that you're going to fail to accomplish because he has already won the war and not just over the powers of darkness, but over the weakness in ourselves, over everything. He will bring that to pass, surely. He who began a good work in you, like in the letter to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your expression of love to us in Jesus Christ. And I thank you that you didn't start or stop there. You gave us salvation in Jesus Christ by paying for our sins with his death, with his blood. But by your power that raised him from the dead, you have also offered us life, eternal life that stop, starts right now. I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for the way that you have drawn us together. And I thank you for the way that you have worked and will work in us to accomplish your good purposes, that we might see you more clearly, that we might be found in Jesus Christ and see in each other his face, his works, his nature, being more clearly revealed day by day. We offer ourselves to you in humble surrender, submission to your will, and expectantly wait to see the good things you will do. So grateful to pray in Jesus' name. Amen.